0: Well, please open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians for our sermon this morning. You can find that on page 813 in the Pew Bible, the book of Ephesians, just about in the middle of the New Testament. I'm going to read a portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians in a moment. But before I do, let me give you some background to this letter. Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians saying in the opening verse, to the saints in Ephesus. He's sending this letter to the Christians who reside in Ephesus, to those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. When we refer to Jesus as Lord, what we are saying is we are not our own. We were created by God for God. He made us and has commanded us to obey him. Jesus is our master and Lord. He is also savior to his people. In Paul's letter to Titus in chapter 3, he says, we are saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He saved us through the washing of regeneration. Regeneration simply means putting spiritual life into a spiritually dead person. We all came into this world spiritually stillborn. Well, now look at the first Three verses of chapter 2 of Ephesians. Paul says there in the first three verses, verses of chapter 2, he says, and, he, and, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were are by nature children of wrath, just as others are. Then in the next verse, verse 4 of chapter 2, comes that wonderful three-letter word, B-U-T, but. He says, but God. Who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And in verse 8, later on, he says, This grace is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. If you are a saint, one who believes in Christ as their Lord and Savior, Let me ask you a question. Why did God choose you and make you alive in Christ? Why did God choose you? It was not because of anything good in you. Remember what we just read in in Titus. It says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. The answer to the question, why did God choose you, is simply stated earlier in the book of Ephesians, in chapter 1, in verses 4 and 5, where Paul says in verse 4, he chose us in him, meaning God chose us in Christ. And at the end of verse 5, he says, according to the good pleasure of his will. God chose us in Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. It was God's eternal good pleasure to choose some for everlasting life. Now, Pastor Dan has often used a good illustration to describe God's choosing some while passing by others. And if you don't mind, Dan, I'm going to steal your little illustration and repeat it. I know many of you have heard it, but it's, I think it's well worth repeating. Dan says, Picture in your mind every person in this world standing on a beach at the edge of an ocean. And God speaks to them saying, I'm giving you only one command. Don't go into the water because you don't know how to swim. Well, God turns his back and guess what happens? Everybody goes into the water and they all begin to drown. But God reaches down and he grabs some here and he grabs some there and he saves some. They were all equally guilty of disobeying God, but disobeying their creator, but it was merely God's good pleasure to save some and give them life. But as I said earlier, this letter to the Ephesians was written to Christians. Paul said, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to those who were saved, And with that bit of background, I want now to jump right to the end of this letter and look at how Paul closes his letter to the saints in Ephesus. Ephesians is a very short book with only six short chapters. The first three chapters are basically doctrine and teaching, and the last three chapters are application. So after three chapters of doctrine and followed by three chapters of application— he ends his letter with one final plea, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6, which will be the focus of today's sermon, centering in on verse 12. So please follow along as I read verses 10 through 17 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. You find that on page 816 in the Pew Bible. And verse 10 begins with the word finally. So Ephesians, chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery dots of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your written word, which is able to make us wise for salvation. And we thank you, Father, for sending your Son to suffer and die for our sins and for sending your Spirit to guide us in all truth. May he open our minds and our hearts to the preaching of your word today. Amen. So Paul begins to close this letter in verse 10 of chapter 6, saying, finally. This word implies that there's one more point that he wants to make before he ends this letter. How often have you heard someone say, the last thing he said was, memorable words we remember. Well, these are Paul's last words to the Ephesians. Paul says, finally, my brethren, some Bibles use the word brother, finally my brother. Well, in calling them brethren or brothers, he shows humility, making himself equal with them, even though he is an apostle and the founder of the church in Ephesus. Well, whatever our gifts of the Spirit are, whatever our calling is, whatever position we may have over others, remember, we are all Saints, and we all have one Father. We are all of one body, and we are all one in Christ. Well, Paul goes on in verse 10 to say, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Paul is speaking here of inward spiritual strength. We should be courageous in performing our Christian duties. This mandate, be strong in the Lord is very similar to Paul's command in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, where he says, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. The last point I'd like to make about verse 10 is that when Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, all strength comes from God. We are only strong in the Lord and not by any strength in ourselves. Remember what Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Our safety lies in resisting, and all the armor mentioned in chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, are for defense. Stand and win, flee and lose. The Christian's courage and confidence is in the Lord and in the power of his might. His power can remove our fear, make us bold in the face of danger, and recover our spirit. Though we may be knocked down and rattled, yet he will make us rise again and renew the battle. In verse 11, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wilds of the devil. Well, the pieces which describe the whole armor are listed, in verses 14 through 17. Let me briefly describe them and their uses before I go on to expound on verse 12. There are six different items listed in the armor of God, and each one represents a different grace. The first five listed are for defense only, and the last one, the sword, is for defense and offense, for both. Um, You have um, the first one uh, is the belt of truth, and the second one is the breastplate. The third is the shoes, then the shield, then the helmet, and then the sword. All listed in order. The first one, the belt of truth, the grace represented by the belt of truth is truth of heart. Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. All of our thoughts, our speech, our actions, and perhaps more importantly, our truth in judgment, all these come from the center of our being. And we ought to have quick access to them just as a soldier does his sword or chain or whip or whatever else he has fastened to his belt that goes around his waist. Truth in our actions, speech, and thought are self-explanatory. But what is truth in judgment? What is truth in judgment? Truth in judgment is when our judgment agrees with God's word. That's truth in judgment. Satan can come at you as a serpent in the person of a false teacher to deceive you. And to defend against this ploy, you must gird your waist with truth, truth in the understanding of God's word. Well, the second item listed is the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness, a right standing before God by perfect obedience to God's law, is not the righteousness Paul meant here when he wrote in this, in this verse. Because he wrote in Romans... Chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who does good, no, not one. The righteousness meant here in Ephesians 6 is the righteousness of a good conscience. This righteousness is a work of the Spirit of God in the believer, whereby they seek with the utmost of their ability the greatest perfection they can attain. The breastplate of a soldier protects him from his neck to his waist. It covers all of the vital organs. It keeps him from being mortally wounded. And so the righteousness of a Christian, his good conscience, keeps his soul safe from being utterly destroyed. It is sin that kills a man, and nothing but sin can destroy the soul. It was sin that provoked God's wrath and brought death to our first parents. Whenever or when the breastplate is well fixed, the devil cannot use our conscience against us because we know that God has chosen to remember our sins no more. Well, the third item listed, if you have an ESV Bible, it calls it shoes. In the King James Bibles and New American Standard Bibles, it reads, Having shod your feet. Well, about 38 years ago, I was selected to be on jury duty in the Wareham District Court, and the first case uh, we sat on, there was a young fellow who was, uh, when they read the charges, it was he was being accused of assault with a shod foot, and well, the jury were kind of looking, what is this? And the judge could see we didn't understand that, so we explained what that meant. And he says, a shod foot just means you have a shoe on your foot. He says it's a more serious crime to assault somebody with a shoe on your foot than without a shoe, because you can do much more damage with the shoe. And he says it comes from the Old English, when they used to shod a horse. They would put a horseshoe on the bottom of his hoof, and you would then have a shod horse. And he says the language carried over into the law, and they keep it as a shod foot. So that's what it means to be. Me having your foot shod. <clears throat> so, but the grace here meant, in verse 15, uh, is the grace of patience. Patience is what arms the Christian soldier against trouble and affliction. Jesus spoke of this patience in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 21, when he was describing about the end times and the troubles that were coming at that, that time. He said in verse 19, by your patience, possess your souls. And we read of this patience also in the letter James wrote, the brother of Jesus and the uh, leader of the Jerusalem church. He wrote, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Patience is a gift of God that enables us to bear the crosses that he is pleased to lay upon us. It is called here in verse 15, a preparation of the gospel of peace. And some Bibles use the word readiness instead of preparation, because by it, we are prepared or made ready to withstand all the dangers and heartaches that, that come to us, that come our way. And the words gospel of peace shows what the gospel brings to us and works in us, namely peace with God. Man in his natural state cannot have peace with God because of sin. Sin separates man from God. But when man is born again, he is reconciled to God by the blood of his son. Words fail to express what peace of God means. Even Paul the Apostle in Philippians in chapter 4 said, The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. True peace descends from God above. It is the fruit of faith. And only the Holy Spirit can produce that blessed peace in your soul. Therefore, only the faithful in Christ Jesus can possess true peace. Peace is the reconciliation we have with God through the blood of Jesus. But you may ask, how do shoes represent patience? Well, let me ask you, would you go hot hiking in the Rocky Mountains without shoes on your feet? Of course not. That would be a foolhardy venture. You wouldn't get very far before you would turn around and head back. But with the proper shoes or boots, you would be well prepared to finish the journey with boldness. Your shoes or boots would prevent the rocks and the sticks and the thorns from hurting your feet. They would also keep your feet from slipping or falling. Well, this world that we pass through on our way to heaven is very hard and rough and thorny full of all sorts of afflictions and troubles. If our souls are naked and bare, not shielded with patience to endure these crosses, we would not even begin. Or if we did, we would not endure to the end. But if our souls are thoroughly covered with true and sound patience, then we are able, with courage and unyielding resolve, to pass through all the troubles of this world. And lastly, the true ground of our patience is a true understanding of the good news of our reconciliation with God. Well, the fourth item listed in verse 16 is the shield. And notice Paul begins this verse by saying, above all, meaning the most important of all. Before you pick up any other piece, grab this one. This shield represents the grace of faith. We cannot please God without faith. As it says in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, without faith it is impossible to please God. It is the most important grace. So the shield is the most important piece of armor, as we will see shortly. Just as your heart is the most vital organ as it pumps oxygen and life into your body, so the grace of faith is able to infuse the whole man with protection from all sorts of temptations brought against him by his enemies, which include the world, our own flesh, and the devil. As Christians, we must take up the spiritual shield of faith against all temptations. We might think, that as long as we have the shield of faith, we need no other grace. But many graces are needed to fight the battle and add one to another. Uh, The Apostle Peter, in his second letter, said, Add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And then in a few verses later, Peter says, If these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren or unfruitful. Therefore, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, though you know and are established in the truth. The shield was the greatest piece of defensive armor that the soldier would carry into battle. It was taller than it was broad, and it covered him from his chin all the way down to his ankles. And with it, he was able to defend against a wide range of assaults. But other pieces of armor also proved to be necessary in the battle, such as a helmet, which is the fifth item listed in verse 17. Hope is the spiritual grace represented by the helmet. We've all heard that Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture, and that has been told by many of the old saints, the Puritans, the Reformers, all the way back to Augustine. Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. And so what Paul says here in verse 17 is plainly stated by him in First Thessalonians chapter 5, where he says, put on a helmet, the hope of salvation. What could be clearer than that? The salvation is hope. The knowledge of good things to come, the inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved for you, is what we hope for. It is what God has promised to those who have faith in Christ. But you will never hope for it unless you believe it to be true. And you cannot believe in something that you know nothing about. The sixth item is the sword, the sword of the spirit. This is the last piece of armor, and it is used not only for defense as the others, but also for offense, just as you would a physical sword. It is not enough to keep our enemies from assaulting us, but we must do our best to drive them away and destroy them. James says in chapter 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, that word resist is not just defense, but also offense. The Greek word for resist also suggests to oppose. So to resist or to oppose the devil shows that our struggle must be to drive him away and put him on the run. So the sword of the Spirit, which is clearly defined here in verse 17, is the Word of God. And we know that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, why is the Word of God called the sword of the Spirit? Why is the Word of God called the sword of the Spirit? Because the author of it is the Holy Spirit. It is spiritual in nature. It's not a sword made of metal. That is why Paul can go on to say in 2 Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, able to penetrate so deeply as to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. That is why many people do not delight in reading God's Word. It reveals their sinful desires. Well, remember what Paul said also to Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, which is teaching, for reproof, for correction, For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work or battle, as we will now see. So let's go back to the beginning of this section in verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul begins this um, final plea and this strong call to arms he's giving. In verse 10, he says, be strong. And then verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor. And he says this because we have some mighty fierce enemies who are set on destroying us. This enemy is first identified at the end of verse 11 in your Bibles and is identified as the devil. And then in verse 12, the devil is defined. Let me read to you verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Well, Paul begins in verse 12 saying, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood are creatures that have a body or or physical material that consists of flesh and blood. The devil is an angel a fallen angel, and angels are spirit beings. They were not created with flesh and blood as we are. Now Paul is not excluding here our own flesh, which can be our enemy, nor is he excluding other men, who also may be our enemy, seeking our our demise. But the, the phrase, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, is to be taken comparatively, it's not so much against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. These principalities, etc., that are what Paul's chief concern is. These principalities are not flesh and blood. Our most lethal enemies are more than flesh and blood. They are more in number. They are greater in power, craftier, more malicious, furious, cruel, and more dangerous. No human is strong enough in his own power to stand against the devil. As Paul said in Second Corinthians, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Our most ruthless enemies are not like us, made of flesh and blood, but are spirit beings, and our weapons must be spiritual in nature, as the graces described in the armor of God, truth, patience, faith, hope, etc. Now the devil is able to use and does use flesh and blood in his assault on us. People are instruments or tools that Satan may use. In the book of Job, in chapter 1, Satan used the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans to rob Job of all his camel, his oxen, his donkey, and sheep. They also killed all but four of his servants. And all of Job's children were killed when suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell on the people and they all died. Yet when you read this account in the in chapter 1 of Job, all this loss of life and destruction is attributed to Satan. When Eve was tempted in the garden by a serpent, she was really dealing with the devil. When Peter tempted Christ, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. And later on when Peter denied Christ to a maid, it was Satan who was sifting him. Satan is called the God of this age. It's with a small g, God. He's called a murderer from the beginning. A liar and the father of lies. He is the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience and Satan is able to transform himself into an angel of light. Now in verse 12, Paul is telling us, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against forces much more sinister. If you are easily frightened and quickly given to the temptations of man, you will never be able to stand against these spiritual enemies, known as principalities, powers, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual hosts of wickedness. If you are terrified by the squeaking of a mouse, how much more terrified by the roar of a lion? And the Apostle Peter warns us that Satan is coming after us like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan does not fight with us at a distance, but in close, a one-on-one It's a real struggle, a wrestling. Other enemies may lay hold of our arms and legs, but Satan is a spirit, and he lays hold on our spirits and our minds. He gets within and pulls and twists our heart. But remember, Satan can never force you to sin. He must first gain your consent. Never open the door to let him in. Satan can do nothing until we listen to him. And wrestling is not easy. It is violent. It requires strength and skill and stamina. And Satan deals with us like a roaring lion, aiming to destroy our souls. We must make every effort on our part not to become his prey. However, there may be some special occasions when our only means of resisting Satan is to flee, just as Joseph did when he was tempted by part of his wife. We must wrestle hard because Satan has many tricks and strategies which he will use against us. He has the experience of thousands of years so that he knows well how to take advantage of us and to sneakingly attack us like a thief in the night. Satan will mix error with just enough truth to make it appear credible. He does this by first putting doubt into your mind and whispering, Did God say? Did God say? Just as he said to Eve in the garden. And he continues to do today, putting doubts into the minds of many people. John Calvin, in his commentary, Said, God has warned us that Satan will marshal all his forces to break in upon us and has shown us the methods he will use. It is for us to be ready to meet him so that he may find no chink in our armor. We should not be unaware of Satan's tactics. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. We ought not let Satan take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Don't let him outwit you. Be constantly on your guard against his schemes. Or perhaps there are some here asking, must we wrestle against such sinister and powerful forces? Yes. Yes, there is a necessity for it. for there are only two options. Either you must wrestle with the enemy or be taken captive by him. Doesn't that make you want to fight? Especially when the victory is assured when we wrestle in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Wrestling with Satan begins with our spiritual birth until our natural death. From the first hour you set your face to heaven until you set your feet in heaven. Today, the wicked people of this world only think of the sweetness of sin and the trouble of wrestling. But when the Christian thinks of the fruits of victory over sin, death, judgment, and hell, he will diligently and freely set his sights on this glorious victory. The war is only for a short time. The victory is for eternity. The combat is right and just. It is appointed by God. He commands us to put on the whole armor and wrestle with our spiritual enemies. God commands us to resist Satan in the faith. You see, if if you are a Christian, you belong to God. You are his property by creation and redemption. Satan is trying to possess what he has no right to. In fighting him, you are defending your own right and the kingship of God in your souls. Remember, God has put limits on what Satan was allowed to do to Job, just as as he has put limits on the seas and the oceans. To them, he said, thus far you may come and no farther. Satan would destroy you if he was allowed to. But God has set limits on what he may do. And God has given strength to his people to be courageous and fight. God has promised his presence with you on the battlefield by weakening the power of the enemy and increasing strength to his people. And for this battle, God has provided you a complete and impenetrable armor. Wearing this armor, you shall be able to stand in the evil day against the wilds of the devil and quench all the fiery dots of the wicked one. Jesus promises that we will have eternal life, that we will eat of the tree of life, that we will feed on the heavenly manna, that we will receive the crown of life and reign with him forever. Wrestlers shall finally triumph. When, you might ask, in the day of judgment. Those who now serve Satan and refuse to wrestle against him shall, in the end, be sent with him down to hell. But those who fight the Lord's battles, the day is coming when we shall march in triumph with Christ into glory and shall see our enemies no more. This victory is certain to all the saints. Paul tells us in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? God will never allow you to be overcome by this persistent enemy. Jesus is our captain. He is mightier than all our enemies. And remember, there is a host of mighty angels to guard you through your battle. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author says, speaking of angels, he says... Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? We have God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with legions of angels on our side. What greater safety can we have that should fill us with the hope of victory over all our enemies? Satan is powerful, but don't fear him too much. For God is your refuge and strength. Nor must you think lightly of him also. For no creature on earth can stand before him. But flee to God. Rely on his strength, where you will find safe shelter in every time of danger. Jesus has already conquered Satan for us. He is a chained creature. Believe this and fight and be confident of your victory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the graces you have given to your people to fight against the wiles of the devil. Truth of heart, a good conscience, patience, faith, Hope, and the word of God, which is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Help us, Father, to remember that the devil is a conquered and chained creature. He will flee if we resist him. Help us, Father, for we are weak, but you are strong. Amen.